Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, succession creator Jesse Armstrong reflects on the hit show's circuitous evolution. Marina Hyde is amused by the idea of the Home Secretary being just too famous to attend an online speed awareness course. And a hostage negotiator reveals the secrets that can transform your life. Now, Succession has been the TV drama of our time, a brutal unpicking of how power works. As the series comes to an end, its creator, Jesse Armstrong, looks back at its origin and the unholy trinity of men who inspired Logan Roy. Read by Toby Williams. My first vivid memory of the project that would develop into Succession was trying to get out of it. It was about 2008, and I was on location for the filming of Peep Show, the UK sitcom my longtime writing partner Sam Bain and I wrote together. Between that show and my work on The Thick of It and In the Loop and a bunch of other things, I was feeling overcommitted. That particular day, we were pretending a very normal field in Hertfordshire was a safari park. I sloped off from set and, hiding from imaginary lions, tried to elegantly step away from the project. I failed and in the following months, as I wrote slowly, I became certain the script was a dud. It was stodgy and odd. The original idea, a faux documentary laying out Rupert Murdoch's business secrets, with them delivered straight to camera, evolved as I worked into a sort of TV play set at the media owner's 80th birthday party. Channel 4 were supportive, but it was an odd form, this docudrama TV play, and difficult to make happen. Around 2011, After a read-through in London where John Hurt played Rupert, the project essentially died. My US agent was the first person I recall suggesting a totally different approach. A fictional family, a multi-series US show. For five years or so, I dismissed the idea, certain that a portrayal of a fictional family would 
never have the power of a real one. Four works changed my mind. HBO's excellent Robert Durst documentary, The Jinx. Sumner Redstone's grimly business-focused autobiography, A Passion to Win. James B. Stewart's propulsive Disney War. And Tom Bauer's fascinating Robert Maxwell biography, Maxwell, The Final Verdict. These turned the idea of doing a media family drama without a single real-life model from a terrible betrayal of reality into a tantalising chance to harvest all the best stories. Here was an opportunity to explore all the most fascinating family dynamics within a propitiously balanced fictional hybrid media conglomerate. I took a long, deep dive into rich family and media business research. When Sam and I decided to bring things to a close on Peep Show, I flew out to pitch this media show around LA. I had a clear idea of where I wanted to develop it, but my agent persuaded me appetites would be whetted if we had a number of potential homes. So I spent three days doing a round of pitch meetings where I talked about this as-yet-unwritten idea in half-ionised terms as Feston meets Dallas, no stars, Dogmay 95 camera work. Scared of driving on the five-lane highways, I bumped around town in the back of a Honda Civic, while a nice young man from my US agent's mailroom ferried me between rooms stocked with identical tiny bottles of water and executives of vastly varying degrees of interest. Eventually, I got to HBO, the place I most wanted the show to land, home to the Sopranos and Six Feet Under. I knew they might be receptive. Frank Rich, once known as the Butcher of Broadway for his theatre criticism, but now an in-house conciliary, had championed my work there to the boss, Richard Plepler, and I'd previously developed a show with them. So, out the back of a French-style bistro, on a three-cappuccino high, I pitched it to the head of drama and comedy, Casey Bloys. Sometimes, a pitch stretches thin and threadbare, the fabric renting as you go, the other party peeping grimly through the holes. Other times, the air thickens, and you can feel the atmosphere in the room turn oxygen-rich as the enthusiasm you are trying to project transforms into an enthusiasm you are actually feeling. By the time I left LA, HBO had made an offer and Adam McKay, fresh from the big short, had said he would be interested in directing. I'd written another succession forerunner, a script about the US political strategist Lee Atwater for Adam and his producing partner Kevin Messick. It had been one of the few LA experiences I'd had where the excitement expressed at the start of the project sustained through the writing and attempts to get it made. This was 2016, and once back in the UK, I wrote the pilot through the spring and summer in a one-room flat I rented on Brixton Hill, South London, walking across Brockwell Park each morning, listening to podcasts and reading news about the Brexit referendum. Scotland had recently voted by a narrow majority to stay inside the UK and the abiding sense, right before the Brexit vote, was, yeah, change looms, it glistens menacingly, promisingly, but it doesn't happen, not really. Really, everything stays the same. But then, it did happen. And across the Atlantic, the Trump campaign was igniting. Even if initially his candidacy felt like a slightly amusing, slightly too vivid flash in the pan. Into early autumn, in fact, all serious people were still explaining to one another that Trump couldn't happen. Although I suppose, looking back, there was a notable lack of detail in terms of the mechanism by which he would be stopped. 
I think a lot of the better films and TV shows I've been involved with have at their heart a quite simple impulse around which the more subtle layers are spun. In the loop spark was anger at the Iraq war. Chris Morris's Four Lions, I think, was driven by his gut feeling that something was very wrong with the way we understood jihadi terrorism in the UK. Peep Show was about oddball male friendship, perhaps even masculinity. I guess the simple things, at the heart of succession, ended up being Brexit and Trump. The way the UK press had primed the EU debate for decades. The way the US media's conservative outriders prepared the way for Trump, hovered at the brink of support and then dived in. The British press of Rothermere, Maxwell, Murdoch and the Barclay brothers, and the US environment of Fox and Breitbart. The Sun doesn't run the UK, nor does Fox entirely set the media agenda in the US, but it was hard not to feel, at the time the show was coming together, the particular impact of one man, of one family, on the lives of so many. Right-wing populism was on the march across the globe, but in the fine margins of the Brexit vote and Trump's eventual electoral college victory, one couldn't help but think about the influence of the years of anti-EU stories and comment in the UK press. The years of Fox dancing with his audience, sometimes leading, sometimes following, as the wine got stronger, the music madder. It was politically alarming and creatively appealing to imagine the mixture of business imperatives and political instinct that exist within a media operation. To consider what happens when something as important as the flow of information in a democracy hits the reductive brutality of the profit calculation inside such a company. How those elements might rebound emotionally and psychologically inside a family as it considered the question of corporate succession. For Logan Roy, Murdoch, Redstone and Maxwell were my holy trinity of models. But Conrad Black, Brian L. Roberts of Comcast, Robert Mercer of Breitbart, Julian Sinclair-Smith of Sinclair, Tiny Rowland, Rothermere, Beaverbrook and Hurst all fed in. The three central models were wildly different, of course. The self-made refugee Maxwell and the already rich Murdoch, a scion of Australian journalistic royalty, both so different from the tough Boston lawyer Redstone, who started with a couple of his father's drive-in cinemas. But they were connected by a strong interest in a few things. A refusal to think about mortality. Redstone and Murdoch both used to make the same joke about their succession plan. Not dying. Desire for control. Manic deal-making energy. Love of gossip and power connection. A certain ruthlessness about hirings and firings. And most of all, an instinct for forward motion, with a notable lack of introspection. Perhaps the best part of Redstone's autobiography for a casual reader is the opening, where he recounts clinging by one hand to a hotel balcony through a fire. Despite suffering third-degree burns over half his body, years of rehabilitation, excruciatingly painful skin grafts, he says this event, after which he made all his biggest business plays, had no impact whatsoever on the trajectory of his life. Whether due to all this grist or the aligning of the political planets inauspiciously, the pilot came unnervingly easily. Getting names in a script to feel real can be hard for me. They're a telltale sign of whether I'm living inside it. Kendall, Shiv, Roman, Connor. They all felt right straight off the bat. Their inspirations, I suppose, were the children of these magnets, three of the Maxwell kids, the ones closest to the business, the boys, Ian and Kevin, and to their father, Ghislaine. Brent and Shari Redstone, with whom Sumner played a tough and complicated game of bait-and-switch over CBS Paramount succession. 
and the Murdoch children, Prudence, Lucklin, James, Elizabeth, Chloe and Grace. But getting those names for the Roy children made them feel like their own individuals to me. It allowed me to pour in just what I wanted from the real world, fill each with all the faults they might have inherited, while giving me room to add some extra, just for them. Greg and Tom came fast too. Tom from two roots. One was thinking about the sort of lunks I've occasionally seen powerful women choose as partners. Plausible, manly men with big watches and a soothing, affable manner. That mixed with the deadly courtier, a more 18th century figure, minutely attuned to shifts in power and influence. An invisible, deadly gas that occurs in certain confined spaces and rises to kill anyone unwise enough not to take precautions. A hanger-on sustained by some Fitzgeraldian illusions about the world, a sense that perhaps the rich really are different from us, and a romantic ambition to make it in New York City. Greg, I guess, was a distant relative of the sort of political adviser I had myself briefly been. Gormless, clueless, out of place, gauche, but not without an eye for a deal. And, I hope, a little more wheedling and insinuating than I ever was. The charge between these two semi-outsiders struck me from the start as toxic and comic. Tom, the interloper, is like an organism that has found a precarious but rewarding perch above some deep oceanic vent and adapted itself to conditions perfectly. He is not pleased at all to see a similar creature scuttling along, hoping to share the same cramped evolutionary niche. That first half-bullying, half-provocative exchange they share in the outfield at a softball game in the pilot landed them right in the middle of a stew they've been cooking in ever since. The scenes flowed. I had eaten a very large amount of research, but once I was writing, I put it all aside and followed my nose and wrote pretty much exactly what I wanted. It felt funny, but odd and broken-ended, fragmentary, abrupt, oblique, and slightly brutal. When I emailed it off, I had the familiar feeling that Adam, Frank and HBO might email back to say not only was it not good, it wasn't even actually technically a script. But their response was frighteningly positive, almost as though the script was finished, after what was, I thought, a quick first draft. I think every other episode of Succession has gone to at least 30 drafts, usually 50. The pilot barely hit 15. We had our read-through in New York on US Election Day 2016. Before we started, I made the sort of joke lots of people made that day, assuming the polls were right and Hillary Clinton was going to squeeze it. That night, we gathered in Adam McKay's apartment to watch the results roll in. Much later, I walked a long walk back from Soho, where I was staying near the United Nations, looking at the Electoral College numbers projected onto the Empire State Building. We started filming the next day. I still wonder whether succession would have landed in the same way without the mad bum-rush of news and sensation Trump's chaotic presidency provided. Trump wasn't the firebombing of German civilians, and nor is succession Slaughterhouse-Five. But I do sometimes think about Vonnegut, saying no one in the world profited from the firebombing of Dresden except himself. That was an edited extract by Jesse Armstrong from Succession, The Complete Scripts. Seasons 1, 2, and 3, Faber and Faber. We'll include a link on the episode page at theguardian.com. Jesse Armstrong donated the fee for this article to the Writers Guild of America Strike Assistance Fund. We'll be back after this short break. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Next. As Rishi Sunak hummed and hard about how to solve a problem like Suella this week, Marina asked, Was the Dua Lipa of SW1 too famous to join an online speed awareness course with the plebs? Sure, well, in her own mind at least. Read by Evelyn Miller. I think being recognised on a speed awareness course would actually have played quite well for Suella Braverman suggesting she takes her slaps on the wrist like any ordinary person. Getting a speeding ticket is not the worst thing in the world. Let's face it, it probably wasn't even the worst thing she did that week. It would certainly have played better than trying to weasel out of the standard course, with or without the requested assistance of the civil servants she usually likes to insult as the blob. Sarah Palin's cack-handed pitch for Powerbook was called Going Rogue. If the Home Secretary does write an equivalent tome during her next spell in the political wilderness, I'd like to see it called On the Blob. For now, there is much to enjoy in Braverman's sense that she was simply too famous and too distracting to do an online speed awareness course with the plebs. In fact, as Attorney General at the time, Suella surely enjoyed a greater degree of anonymity than that afforded by even the better witness protection programmes. Yet, the Dua leaper of SW1 instead opted to take the three points on her licence. A genuinely ridiculous piece of judgement that will somehow not permanently disqualify her from suggesting she's the best person to have her hands on the nuclear codes. But... As we head into an ashes summer, you honestly shouldn't be able to look at the Home Secretary without lightly adapting that famous sledge chucked at Phil Tufnell. Oi, Braverman, lend us your brain, I'm building an idiot. Maybe Suella was worried she'd get the speeding course questions wrong. You get the feeling it takes her 18 goes at a recapture before she can prove to the Karen Millen website that she's sentient. Look... I'm not saying that Braverman deployed civil servants to establish whether or not a square contained an image of a traffic light. I'm just saying she asked for advice on the possibility of civil servants establishing whether or not a square contained an image of a traffic light. Big difference. Huge. Still, does Madam give a toss about how her latest cock-up is playing out? It doesn't seem like it. 
Even at the best of times, Braverman's resting face radiates Didham's level concern. She always looks like she's just asked a pupil, and who do you think they're going to believe, me or you? Suella's is the carefree self-satisfaction of someone convinced they can stay awful way longer than you can stay angry. The Office for National Statistics published its 2022 migration figures on Thursday, with a very significant rise expected at the time of writing. And Braverman has for some time been regarded as searching for the right moment to leave the government so as not to be tarnished with the failure to hit targets to say nothing of various other failures coming down the slipway. So maybe the speeding story emerging now is Suella's intricately plotted long-range attempt at suicide by cop and being fired from Rishi Sunak's cabinet, having spent much of her time in it trying to make her predecessor, Pretty Patel, look like Gary Lineker. That said, other far-fetched conspiracy theories are available, Tory Clouseau, Miriam Cates MP, on Monday declared, It's no coincidence that someone has leaked this private information in the same week that Suella has publicly spoken out about the need to reduce legal migration. She's literally the Home Secretary. But okay. Strong words from Miriam, who spent some of the previous week informing the NatCon conference that thanks to cultural Marxism... Raising the birth rate was the most pressing policy issue of the generation. After a full 13 years in power, it seems like a bit of a self-own to find members of this Conservative Party ranting about the low birth rate. You'd think they'd avoid drawing attention to having helped establish an atmosphere of such profound hopelessness that young people judge it simply unwise to continue the species. Whichever way you slice it, the whole affair does seem to be being oddly stage-managed by Braverman's spads, or simply lied about when that's easier. Even when definitively rumbled on the story, her team seemed to have pushed her to talk about it in the past continuous. On at least five occasions on Monday... Braverman chose to deploy the weird formulation, last summer I was speeding, which makes it sound like a phase rather than a single incident. You know the sort of thing. Last summer I was speeding, I was cutting class, I was wearing my hair too long, I was spending a lot of time hooked up to a daiquiri machine, I was in short, a hot mess. As I say, I think I'd have gone with something simpler like, last summer I got a speeding ticket. But who are we to judge the genius strategists of the Suella Braverman war machine? As for the question of whether Rishi Sunak will sack Suella, the PM spent a few days debating whether or not to launch an ethics probe into her conduct. That would seem to be an exercise with about as much point as launching a survivor's probe of the wreck of the Titanic. Mate, I don't think they're going to find any ethics down there. Then again, the sheer number of probes into the Home Secretary's antics that have been called for, even over the past year, suggest some kind of specialist Suella unit may be the answer. Working title, Braverman 2-0. Ultimately, 
One of the main reasons that Sunak acceded to the post of Prime Minister at the second time of asking last year was that he won the coveted... Sorry, I, I can't believe I'm going to have to type these words. The coveted Suella Braverman endorsement. Yep, that was the reality. Try not to choke on it. At the time, Braverman backing Sunak was regarded as the clincher that definitively headed off the possibility of Boris Johnson making the least welcome comeback to British life since measles. You may recall, Suella was in the middle of a spell in the political wilderness, which we can regard as very modern in that it lasted precisely six calendar days and saw her restored to precisely the same office of state she had vacated less than one big shop ago. The very idea that Braverman could once again be embroiled in a potential breach of the ministerial code, and indeed it not even be her first potential breach since reassuming office. Well, who among us? Who among us could have possibly foreseen it? That was Make Way for Westminster's Bigger Celebrity, Suella Three Points Braverman by Marina Hyde, read by Evelyn Miller. Finally, after years in the police, Scott Walker became a response consultant, aka hostage negotiator, handling everything from abductions to piracy and cyber attacks. Now, the skills he has amassed over the years can help you get a pay rise, lower your rent, or defuse a family crisis. Read by Toby Williams. Somewhere in Europe, a man is taken at gunpoint from his BMW. He is a successful businessman, worth an estimated 200 million euros. From the burnt-out wreckage of his car, it's clear that this is a professional operation. In London, 48 hours later, Scott Walker is part of the team brought in to secure the man's release. A hostage negotiator with more than a decade's experience, Walker prepares himself for a long haul. It could be weeks before the kidnappers make contact with their demands. But the immediate negotiation is not with them. It's with the hostage's younger brother. After the man was taken hostage, his brother assumed the roles of a family representative, decision-maker and chief negotiator with the kidnappers, a load usually shared by three people. He saw this as his moment to shine, his opportunity to prove himself to himself. And he really struggled, says Walker. Attempting to shoulder the responsibility alone, the brother unravelled into a physical and emotional wreck. Yet the man remained resistant to the experts around him. We call it the crisis within a crisis, says Walker, and it can loom large, even against a backdrop of life or death. All of us have experience of letting our emotions or ego get the better of us. Walker has learned how to master his in even the most volatile circumstances. But these lessons can be equally useful, he says, in day-to-day -day life. In his first book, Order Out of Chaos, Walker shares his hard-won insights on how to become a world-class communicator and achieve your desired outcome in every negotiation, whether it's a pay rise from your boss or a better rate from your bank. The book had to be reviewed closely by lawyers and peers to ensure it did not reveal trade secrets. And all case studies, including those referenced here, are composites. For Walker, 
Writing it has meant stepping into the spotlight after a career spent strategically behind the scenes. I thought long and hard about it, having spent most of my working life in the shadows, not wanting to bring attention to myself, he says, when we talk one morning over Zoom. I just saw so many crossovers with the real world. Besides, he adds, after years of never venturing too far from a major airport in case he got the call, he was ready for a slower pace. I'd got to that stage where I didn't fancy jumping on a plane every few weeks. Walker has always been interested in psychology, the art of persuasion, and what makes people tick. For 16 years, he worked as a police detective, investigating the full spectrum of wrongdoing, from petty theft to terrorism. I loved being a cop, he says. I enjoyed every single day. Then a chance encounter in the canteen of Greenwich Police Station with a colleague who had just successfully resolved a kidnapping inspired Walker to apply to join the Hostage Crisis and Negotiation Unit at Scotland Yard. On being selected, Walker was told that there are more people who have been to the International Space Station than there are working full-time as response consultants. He learned the ropes by travelling the world alongside more experienced negotiators. Then, in 2015, not long after his 40th birthday, Walker returned home from another successful negotiation and learned that his mother had killed herself. The loss triggered a period of soul-searching. Some would argue that it was a midlife crisis. I was going all over the world, saving other people's lives. And I couldn't save the one that really mattered, he says. I wasn't going to allow myself to fall into a spiral of despair. I had to find my own path. I'm going to make the most of my life by never wasting a moment and serving others. Within a few months of burying his mum, Walker had divorced his wife, quit the police force and joined a private consultancy, specialising in crisis response for large insurance companies. In the police, he'd had a large team around him, but in the private sector, he says, you were it, essentially. Sometimes we worked alongside the police. In other cases, we didn't and they weren't notified, or if they were, they might just let us get on with it. Sometimes, the police were complicit in the kidnapping. Walker has since helped to resolve hundreds of corporate cases, often kidnappings for ransom, but also piracy, extortion and cyber attacks. And through all of his work, he has gained a unique understanding of what makes people think, feel and act the way they do. Negotiation isn't some arcane, esoteric art, he says. It's everyday communication, how we communicate with ourselves, first of all, but also with our friends, our family, our colleagues and our community. In fact, he estimates that in any given crisis, as much as 80% of his time and energy is spent negotiating with the client, often the hostage's family or employer. Dealing with the kidnappers is easy, he says. I laugh, despite myself. It is, Walker insists. It becomes a transaction. They have something we want, and we have something they want. It's just getting to the point where we can safely exchange that. Contrast that with the shadowy, unspoken family dynamics or the clashing egos and hidden agendas on an executive leadership team, and the so-called bad guys start to seem relatively straightforward to wrangle. All of the emotions, the issues and human foibles are magnified in this extremely high-pressure scenario, says Walker. In the case of the businessman taken for ransom, his brother was so determined to retain control that he refused to use a burner phone for communicating with the kidnappers meaning that every innocent call or notification he got on his phone sent his cortisol skyrocketing. Walker tried to reason with him, emphasising the importance of managing stress and uncertainty, of erecting boundaries around the negotiation, but the brother 
refused to listen. When, after sleepless weeks, the kidnappers finally made contact with a ransom demand of some 20 million euros, the brother lost his call and threatened them with revenge. The kidnappers' response was calm and immediate. They would kill their hostage. Then they hung up. Walker does not blame the brother for frustrating the delicate operation. In the heat of the moment, his response was only natural. But the example demonstrates Walker's number one rule. Ahead of any negotiation, gain control of your own internal state. Knee-jerk reactions, leading with anger or fear and negative self-talk, often lead to undesirable outcomes. It starts with yourself, your mind and your emotions. Then you work outwards, he says. It's an inside-out game. He recalls another kidnapping case, early in his career, in which the family's point person was refusing to move to a safe house for the negotiation. I was getting really frustrated with him, to the point of shouting, What do you not get about this? And that's when my more experienced colleague subtly put his hand on my shoulder and gave it a squeeze. Calmly and confidently, Walker's colleague reduced the tension by reminding the hostage's family that their number one priority was simply to breathe. After that, he slowly took them through the objectives for the next call with the kidnappers, starting by reassuring them that they were all motivated to resolve the situation. It was then that I realised that how to get people on side is a learnable skill, says Walker. It comes down to emotional self-regulation. Learning to manage one's ego and emotional responses so as to counter the deleterious effects of stress, communicate more effectively and secure a better outcome. For this reason, even through a live crisis like a hostage situation, Walker would encourage clients and colleagues alike to prioritise their well-being with rest, nutrition and movement. He would even remind the kidnappers to sleep and drink water if they seem to be struggling to function. Walker calls this entering your battle rhythm, whereby you prepare your mind and body for a tense, lengthy negotiation. It's taking control of what you can and not worrying about the rest, he says. Mindfulness exercises such as box breathing and visualising a successful outcome can also help boost resilience in the face of conflict. The chemical bodily reaction to an emotion such as fear or anger can pass in fewer than 90 seconds, Walker says, if you choose not to feed it. It is that ability to know I'm being hit by a tsunami of emotion here and to feel it, he says. Don't shy away from it or pretend it doesn't exist. Much of Walker's advice wouldn't feel out of place on Headspace, the beloved mindfulness app. But that's just proof of the universality of mindset training, he says. I'm not pretending that I've created some brand new way of doing things. It's been with us thousands of years. Everyone from Tibetan monks to ultra-marathon runners have benefited from techniques to control the ego and quieten the mind. If it seems like a particular challenge today, Walker suggests, it may be because the times are just so noisy and reactive. He points to the polarity on social media. Heaven knows the world needs better conversations right now. Everybody's shouting, no one's listening. With practice, he suggests, it's possible to create a calm, balanced and objective state of mind that you can readily assume whenever you find yourself under pressure. He likens it to creating your own internal red centre or crisis comms HQ, to which you can mentally retreat when faced with an unpleasant or unexpected situation and have faith in your decision-making. Often, Walker says, the feelings provoked in us by other people 
are telling us something about ourselves. Everybody wants to blame the other person for quote-unquote triggering them, but actually it's a mirror. Knowing this can be a useful tool for developing greater self-awareness, he adds. Why is this showing up for me? Why am I so incensed? But just as vital as keeping your own emotions in check is cultivating empathy for the other side, he adds. His second rule for negotiation success is, it's not about you. To get someone to see your point of view, first you must seek in earnest to understand theirs. This sets up a relationship that makes it possible to meet halfway. If you are angling for a pay rise from your boss, Walker suggests asking yourself, how can you demonstrate your value to the company or contribute more? If your landlord wants to increase the rent, Walker says to start by researching whether or not it's a reasonable request. If not, then it's about articulating, I pay my rent on time every month. I really like living here. I'm happy to sign up for another 12 months or two years, etc. Rather than going, no, I'm not going to pay that, he says. Putting yourself explicitly in your landlord's position by demonstrating awareness of the market from their perspective, the costs and risks, can be helpful in building rapport. What you want to do is get to that point where they go, the tenant gets me, rather than, they're just trying to pull a fast one, says Walker. I'd rather take £50 a month less from someone I really trusted and got on with. Good relationships can be fostered through active listening and asking better questions, says Walker. Often we can be too quick to share our own experience or push for resolution, leading the other side to feel manipulated or dismissed. A negotiator knows that the person is not going to open up until they feel seen, heard and understood. But sometimes, he adds, walking away from a negotiation is the right thing to do. Other times, the real reward may register at first as a loss. You might have made the uncomfortable decision to move out or find a new job, but actually it could end up being the best thing that ever happened. It is about that willingness to withstand uncertainty. In the case of the businessman, after that explosive call with his brother, the kidnappers went silent for days, then weeks. Eventually, after three months, the brother was persuaded by the rest of the family to step back. Walker and his team were able to reconnect with the kidnappers with a more level-headed relative in the role of intermediary and negotiate the hostage's safe release. Thankfully, says Walker, I've never lost a hostage from a negotiation. I wonder... Does anybody ever say no to him? He laughs. I've got a pretty good success rate, but, he says, having shown his children how to manage their emotions when they were young, now that they're teenagers, they're kind of wise to it. Sometimes they'll know what buttons to press with me. That was Dealing with Kidnappers is Easy. A hostage negotiator reveals the secrets that can transform your life. By L. Hunt. Read by Toby Williams. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller and Toby Williams and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.